You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, and I like it. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll music, rock and roll, 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 rock and roll is king. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and I haven't been with a woman since the Bush administration. Ew. And I don't mean W either. Whoa. Thank you. I want to remind everybody that if you're digging the podcast, you can show your support by subscribing on iTunes or iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to internet broadcasts. And also leave us a five-star rating along with hopefully a positive review and tell a friend. And in lieu of that, just send cash. This episode has been a long time in the planning. We've been trying to have this legendary drummer on the show pretty much since we first started 18 months ago. And I'm thrilled to say it's finally happened. When I started getting into rock and roll when I was eight, I pretty much took it one band at a time, at least in terms of getting all their albums and reading whatever books I could find on them. I know I've said this before, but that was a lot harder in 1980 than it is today. And shortly after I exhausted all things Beatles, a buddy at school turned me on to The Doors, who became my next musical obsession. I bought at least one Doors album a week and played it nonstop. Drove my family crazy. And I read and reread the mandatory biography for all Jim Morrison and Doors fans, No One Here Gets Out Alive, by the veteran Rolling Stone writer Jerry Hopkins and Danny Sugarman, both of whom are no longer with us, I'm sorry to say. And as the years went on, I watched resurgence after resurgence of the Doors' music and popularity, with new generations discovering what I knew back as a preteen what many of you out there probably knew firsthand back in the 60s, that collectively Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek, Robbie Krieger, and today's guest John Densmore not only created a sound, but also reflected a social movement which knocked down the last remaining barriers of post-war American norms. And their message seems to resonate even 55 years later. Love my girl.
Today's guest was the drummer for one of the most influential and consequential bands of not only the rock era, but of all the musical eras since time immemorial, The Doors. His unique ability to cull from divergent rhythmic styles such as jazz, Latin, blues, and Eastern influences helped shape the enigmatic sound that has come to be associated with The Doors since they first hit the music scene in 1967. Late last year, he released his third book, The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists, which comes out in paperback on November 16th. It is my sincere honor to welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John Densmore. Good morning, John. Uh, good evening, Don. <laughs> evening, morning, it's something somewhere. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, let me just start out, since you're a drummer, saying I got a little piece in uh, Modern Drummer on Charlie Watts. Just came out a day or two ago. Uh, me and Ringo and a couple other drummers tipped our hat. What an incredible loss. Yeah. It's the most unenviable job in the world that Steve Jordan is doing right now. I wouldn't well, want to fill those yeah, he's, shoes. A, he's a wonderful drummer too, you know? Yes. You know, Charlie, like me, was sort of a jazz drummer who fell into this rock band, and uh, the rest is uh, what it is. Well, I got to tell you, I love your new book, The Seekers. When did you first come up with the concept? Oh, many years ago. Speaking of tip of the hat, I wanted to write about all these uh, artists who kind of fed me artistically. And it turned out to be a very diverse group, you know, right. a, a conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic and Bob Marley and and my mom and Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it because, you know, we're all on the shoulders of other other artists. And uh, I wanted to say a big thank you. Well, that comes across big time in the book. And best aspect for me was as a musician, while I was reading it, I kept thinking, I can relate to that. As an example, this interview was one of those kid in the candy store moments for me, because I've been wanting to meet you since I was 12 when I first picked up Absolutely Live. And I can admit that to you because, like you detail in your book, you had a similar feelings meeting your drumming hero, Elvin Jones. Tell me about it. I had my fake ID from Tijuana, and I got into Shelley's manhole, named after another drummer, and uh, the doorman knew it was fake, and he let me in anyway. And I hung around with Coltrane and Elvin Jones and just sucked up everything I could from those masters. And it was that kind of charming moment where you're talking about you were helping carry some of the equipment in? Well, at the end of his life. Right. It, at first, I was just, you know, in awe. And then I, later, after Coltrane died, I... I took my first self-centered memoir, this is my third, The the Seekers, the book we're talking about, and I gave it to Elvin and I quickly said, uh, in here I wrote, you gave me my hands, worried about him being condescending, you know, jazz is kind of a higher art form, and he was so warm and kind, and he signed autographs for me of LPs, and, and then by the end of his life, yeah, I did help him take his equipment to the car, so he was a true mentor for me. It's a real full circle moment. Yeah. Before we get into the music, I want to start where you started off in your book, The Seekers, on sale now, uh, talking about your mom, who was also an artist. I mean, she painted, and from what you write, I get the idea that she knew how to channel her art into a healing tool almost. Do you think that's where you picked up the spiritual aspect of making music, which seems to be a theme throughout the book? Wow. Uh, yeah, my mom uh, did say that uh, when she, as she got older, she made it to 94, I think, 96, 94. Um, 
she said when she had pain, she painted. And I thought, wow, now that's smart, channeling your art. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I got tinnitus years ago, the ringing in the ears, mm -hmm. you know. And I used to blame it on Robbie, the Doors guitar player. And then I thought, oh, it's my, it was my crashing my cymbals or whatever. And I uh, kind of got it down much lower by being kind of healthy. N no alcohol, no coffee, whatever. This was years ago. Now yeah, I yeah. can I can dabble again, thank God. But um, <laughs> I, I sort of thought, what is the message here? Oh, oh, I'm supposed to find music in between sentences now and, and something a little subtler. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way of sort of channeling what you're dealt into uh, finding new creativity. Sure. Can you kind of give me the broad strokes of what your childhood was like growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, L.A.? Yeah, I was Ricky Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of the sarcastic kid and... Uh, my parents were good people, and my dad worked real hard, but I just, ooh, I thought, oh, man, I don't know if I can do this 9 to 5 gig. I mean, uh, I'll just live in Venice where it's cheap and there's an ocean view. Well, now it's a million dollars for an apartment in Venice, but mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> luckily I found the brass ring. I, I first was a music major, and then I thought I could never make a living at it, so I switched to business and then I got D's in accounting, which was a message. <laughs> and uh, I still have another year and I can get my college degree, but I'm not going back. Don't you want something to fall back on in case this music thing doesn't work out, John? Well, how about an honorary degree? Come on. There you uh, go. Somebody, you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first rock concert you ever attended as a kid? Um, I saw Chuck Berry with Robbie Krieger. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it just blew my lid off. Well, wait a minute. Before that, I saw the Beach Boys at my high school prom. Really? Yeah, and I'm watching uh, Dennis play left-handed. Like, wow, that's weird. And, um, you know, I never thought I, I, I love music, and I always played it. I never thought I could make a living at it. Um, it's 50 years since that band was going, and I'm still talking about it. Incredible, huh? We did okay. And it's funny, you made a point in the book. You, you mentioned that when you were in high school, musicians were kind of considered nerds because it wasn't cool yet to be a musician. Yeah, that's true. Uh, jocks were cool, especially football players. Yeah. Let me backtrack. Drums were not your first instrument. Yeah, uh, I played piano as an eight-year-old, and I loved it. But it, I liked improvising more than doing the classical lessons and then I wanted to play any instrument in junior high, and but there was no piano in the band or orchestra. And so uh, I, was, I chose clarinet, only I had braces, and my dentist said, no, you're not playing clarinet. That will push them your teeth out. We're trying to push them in. So I, I chose drums, and, uh, and so I owe my career to the dentist, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You did the whole marching band thing in concert. Oh, I did, and I loved it. Yeah. I felt the power of 40 musicians playing together. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I also played timpani in the orchestra. And, oh, I, what I got from the orchestra, the classical music, you know, it, it has really big dynamics, you know, real loud fortissimo and, and really quiet pianissimo and everything in between. And that really affected me. So I'm not the fastest drummer, but I uh, dynamics is my thing. I really like it. 
Big time. We're going to come to that later, too. Okay. Unlike a lot of the people that I've had on the show, as you mentioned, your first influence wasn't rock and roll as much as much as it was jazz. And you mentioned Elvin Jones. What qualities of his playing do you think you've incorporated into your own style? And are there any like Dawes songs that you can pinpoint specifically that you can hear his influence? Um, just just uh, his, his way of playing with Coltrane, having a conversation. You know, the first job, as you know, Don, of the drummer is to keep the groove really important. And, and if you don't have that, all the flash is not going to do anything. Right. And so, you know, if it's a ballad, it's a slow groove and it's a salsa, it's fast. But you got to keep that steady heartbeat. And um, Elvin played polyrhythms around the heartbeat, which was wild and really free. And it, it inspired me to kind of, I don't know, Jim saying, uh, what have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? And I'm going, kind of, kind of mimicking what he's saying. It's a conversation. Yeah. And then I go back to the beat. Right. I will say that there is a few Art Blakey press rolls that I stuck in, uh, oh, Wild Child and, uh, uh, Love Me Two Times, I think. So that was kind of a direct feed. And then there was Chico Hamilton. His his bell beat on the, on the ride cymbal, I kind of copped a feel he had, which I put in the end. So there's a couple direct things. Yeah. What was your first kit? Gretsch. Three-piece Gretsch kit. Then I moved on to Ludwig. Love the Ludwig silver steel snares. I'm still a Ludwig dude. What about symbols? Were they all Zildjian at the time? Yeah, or Piasty 605s. Okay. Yeah. Now, I was surprised to learn that you had an early interest in the teachings of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and TM, and that's got to be a few years before the Beatles brought it into the lexicon of pop culture. So you were ahead of that curve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The, actually, it turned out Maharishi was our press agent. He didn't know it, but <laughs> uh, we were fooling around with then-legal psychedelics, but thinking they're rather shattering on the nervous system and oh meditation might be some cool kind of thing subtle and so i go with robbie to the maharishi meeting and ray's there and that's where we meet so <laughs> it's weird uh, maharishi kind of put us together yeah and you met jim through ray through that yeah correct and jim uh he he wanted to know if he wanted to see if Maharishi had any wisdom. So he came to one meeting and looked in his eyes and said, "Hey, he's cool, but I'm not meditating." Ah, <laughs> uh, too bad. <laughs> so, do you remember your initial thoughts of meeting Jim Morrison? Yeah. Uh, so at these meditation meetings, Ray said, "Hey, I hear you're a drummer. Uh, why don't you come down to my parents' garage in Manhattan Beach and we'll jam?" And I went, "I'm down. I love playing." So I go down there, and there's this guy in the corner, bare feet, cords, and a T-shirt, real good looking, but really shy. And uh, Ray says, this is Jim, the singer, <laughs> although he's never sung before. Okay, um, not the next Mick Jagger. But then Ray hands me uh, the lyrics to break on through on a crumpled piece of paper, and, and I, I, my mind is blown. Day destroys the night, night divides the day, tried to run, tried to hide, break on through to the other side. I'm like, oh my God, where's the drums? I want to play rhythm to this immediately. Mm. 
and and Jim's lyrics and phrasing always kind of inspired me on and taught me how I might drum to support that. The first track of the first side of the first Doors album is you playing that unmistakable, I guess it's a pseudo-Cuban clave beat. Mm, uh, Girl from Ipanema. Stan Getz. Bossa Nova from Brazil was pop charts, big. Yeah. And, and we all loved it and thought, oh, my God, what a wonderful groove, but really light. And I thought, well, I'm going to take that groove and I'm going to make it faster and stiffer. And that's what Break On Through is. Even before you guys were signed, I know you started as Rick and the Ravens with Ray's brothers were in the band and yeah. they eventually left and you came in and you brought Robbie in. Yeah. You know, doing what thousands of teens were doing around the country, basically a garage band. But looking back now, do you remember any specific moment when the four of you just kind of sat down and made a piece of music where you just knew this is going to work, this is special? Well, um, Robbie had Jim come over to his house and he played a little bottleneck guitar. And Jim was like, wow, that's wild. And so then I brought Robbie to the first rehearsal and I told him, play bottleneck, you know. And we played Moonlight Drive. And, and they, you know, it's such a unique sound, that liquidy guitar. That was it. Robbie was in the band. I mean, they wanted him to play bottleneck on every song, sure. which is ridiculous. <laughs> but um, that kind of cemented. First, we jammed on blues. And then we played Moonlight Drive and a few others. And, and you know, when Robbie uh, sang uh, Light My Fire, uh, just... Uh, with guitar and whatever, I, I thought, oh, my God, this is a hit. How long since you guys had started did Robbie bring it into the band? In the early days, we had written the first two albums in total before we ever stepped into the studio. We had like 40 songs, let's say, which we had written over a period of about a year, a year and a half. That's a smart, enviable position to be in, too. Well, uh, yeah, we didn't know we were going to make, right. you know, we got dropped by Columbia Records and, and, and no one, I mean, people, when we were the house band at the Whiskey, people came in, lots of record people and said, you guys are great, but nobody stepped up to sign us except Jack Holzman, this little boutique Electra Records. So we got uh, five grand and um, bought some amps and, and then recorded. You mentioned the Whiskey. I know you started at the London Fog. I'd like to hear about some of those early club dates. What were the circumstances getting fired from the Fog, becoming the house band at the Whiskey, actually? Yeah, the, the London Fog was a dive. And we brought all our friends down. Then they hired us. And then nobody was there the next night. Oh, my God. Hang on, Don. There's an airplane. You hear it? Sounds cool. <laughs> it's going. And so... Um, we played the London Fog. Uh, it, at least it gave Jim the courage to turn around and look at the audience because he was so insecure. He just wanted to look at us because he had never fronted a rock band or, or written songs or anything. But there was a, a fight in the London Fog, and they blamed the band, which was not true, and they fired us. But that very night, the booker from the Whiskey saw us and hired us as the house band. Thank God. And you must have had a lot of people coming in, kind of scoping yeah. out the band. Oh, yeah. But nobody stepped up, you know. But we, we had a great time playing the whiskey. I mean, we played with, let's see, 
Frank Zappa, The Birds, Captain Beefheart, Van Morrison, uh, Buffalo Springfield. Forget it. It was just an incredible time. I had Linda Ronstadt on the show last year, and she mentioned, I don't was it the Whiskey where she played with you guys? No, we were on the road with her. Oh, that was later? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. I remember being on a plane in a snowstorm with Linda Ronstadt, all of us hoping that we could take off and land in the bad weather. It didn't turn out to be the Buddy Holly special, thank God. Thank God, is right. Yeah. You know, not two weeks ago, I was interviewing heavy metal bassist Rudy Sazo, and he mentioned you guys. He made an interesting observation. He was talking about the opposites and how one thing is the flip side of the other. And the Beach Boys represented like the sunny side of L.A., you know, yeah. surf, sand, and fun. Yeah. And the kind of the flip side to that were you guys, the Doors, who embodied the dark side of L.A., the Sunset Strip, cops and cars, topless bars, and all that. Can you <laughs> kind of talk a little bit about how that scene shaped your sound and image? Yeah, um, there was all the, the peace and love uh, bands, which we liked and we were friends with, but there also was the undeclared Vietnam War, mm. you know, kind of like metaphorically the dark underbelly of America that, that we weren't admitting that we were conducting. And so that influenced us. We wrote songs like The End and and more introspective, darker stuff. And uh, it seemed to have lasted. But let me say, there, there is, in this new book, In the Seekers, I write about all these artists, but there is a chapter on Ray and a chapter on Jim. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things about Ray that I was a little bit disappointed to hear, and I know it's water under the bridge now and certainly not something that you want to dwell on, but you guys had your disagreements in recent years. Yeah. Well, first, let's talk about Ray's brilliant ability to split his mind into his left hand being a bass player and his right hand being an organ player. Just staggering. And and his ability to write these hooks, these little da 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 da, -da or the solo and Riders on the Storm. Uh, just magic playing that with him. And so I focused on that. Because my previous book, uh, The Doors Unhinged, was about our legal struggles where, uh, you know, I did not want them touring as The Doors without Jim. Right, I mean, right. you know, the, the police without Sting and the Stones without Mick. Mm -hmm, I said, mm -hmm. come on, you guys are great. Change the name, you know. So we, we had to battle over that. But that is water under the bridge. Right. And you're absolutely right about his ability to play bass. And being a drummer, the rhythm section is so key. Yeah. And you're following not a bass player, but a keyboard player. Yeah. But so when he'd take a solo with his right hand on organ, he might get excited and and the bass player would speed up. And, oh, Whoa, got to yeah, pull the yeah. reins back here. Because it wasn't, as you said, a separate mind playing bass. And, you know, the bass player and the drummer are like the foundation of the rhythm section and cooking the groove brothers in the basement, and uh, it was me and Ray's left hand. Just from listening to the live shows, Jim could take the show in a different direction at a moment's notice. Yeah. You're following the bass play, the, well, the keyboard play in this case, but you're also following Jim's cues, like we talked about the conversation. Did you ever have any train wrecks? <laughs> sure. I mean, that was part of the excitement and gift and curse. You know, he just was one of those guys who was just volatile and open and 
And it was magical. Everybody wondered what was going to happen tonight. But then sometimes it would be, uh, in the beginning, it was really good. But as his alcoholism increased, it, it got worse. And so I really was lobbying for getting off the road. Right. I mean, in the studio, you can go home if he was too loaded. So that was a difficult. What are some of the best gigs that you remember? You know, Don, there's Madison Square Garden and, and the giant mass adulation, which is great. But after a few of those, Jim said, okay, well, next, what else have we got here? But to me, the most exciting uh, gigs were when we made the move from small clubs to eh, small Philharmonic halls, few thousand seats, maybe second bill to somebody famous. We knew that the train was leaving the station. Yeah. yeah. Damn, we're going to make a living at that. Wow, that was really exciting. Because it's all new. And 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 it's going to be our profession. Are you kidding? Okay. You guys get paid fairly? Uh, well, not in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you hear all these stories about record companies ripping people off, managers ripping people off. No, I, I got to hand it to Jack Holzman. You know, uh, when we signed, of course, they owned the publishing and the everything. And then when Light My Fire became number one for 26 friggin' weeks, our lawyer called Jack and said, Jack, give the boys their gold back. And he gave us all the songs back. So Doors Music Company, we own our publishing. That's important. That is unique. Unique, yeah. Yeah, for, for a business that's known for screwing over so many people. Yeah. Well, Jack was, you know, and still is kicking and pushing 90. But he was a visionary boutique label, you know, and he, he had folk music and he had Paul Butterfield, which really inspired us. To, we, we were so excited to be on the same label. Sure. And, you know, Judy Collins and... Uh, love. Yeah, Love. Oh, Love was terrific. And you guys really helped put Electra on the map. Yeah. I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, about the tension that you helped create in The Doors music by, as you said in your book, the void, the silence yeah. in the songs. Yeah. Talk to me about that. It's a very interesting yeah. concept. Yeah, I learned that from... Uh, well, I, I got... Uh, I knew it, but then... Uh, I got validated when I saw Gustavo Dudamel, this young, brilliant conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic, really, like, uh, I, we became friends. And uh, he had one piece where they were supposed to start really soft, and he told the orchestra he would like to conduct maybe four bars or something and don't play. And I was sitting in the audience, and I knew this. And so we were at the audience was straining to hear the music and there wasn't any yet. And then they slowly crept in. It just pin drop time is as powerful as a giant atomic bomb. So if you don't have the contrast of silence and sound, then it's sort of all the same thing. And so I, I don't know the, the end, for example, it was real open. And then I would drop a big tom-tom fill in the right, silence. Right. <laughs> I don't know why, but then later I realized it kind of, it amped up the tension. And so, yeah. You do that beautiful fill and when music's over, when he says, oh, yeah. what in the world we want? You know, it just, just yeah. it's, it's nice. explosion and then the silence. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, you know, well, if you have all the sa- sounds between soft and loud, then you ha- it's like all the human emotions. Right, it's, like, right. it's like breathing. You have everything in there. I read in your book a story I'd never heard before, that early on in the Doors career, you opened for Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs> Jim had inadvertently snubbed Paul Simon. What was that what yeah. about? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, I got a chapter about Paul. Uh, uh, second to the last chapter before Willie Nelson. And I, I see him play, and wonderful, the Graceland stuff with its 10-piece uh, African group, and uh, go backstage and say, hey, Paul, uh, the last time I saw you was at Forest Hills with Artie, and we opened for you. And I have to say, I got to apologize 50 years later at, at how rude Jim was to you. And Paul says, I remember that. <laughs> and and then we sort of figured out that maybe Jim was insecure or something, you know. But uh, it was a funny story and kind of healing to that, you know. He, he, I said, you know, he accepted my apology or whatever. It wasn't your apology to give, though. You did nothing wrong. Yeah, right. You know. But the opposite of that was Dan Morrison, which really surprised me. Yeah, that's kind of a, a tough one. Bummer, uh, bummer. A guy I really admire, and, and he's, he's known to be difficult. And so I was very excited to be asked by his managers to play Gloria at the Hollywood Bowl on his Astral Weeks tour. It was uh, Van's reclusive. <laughs> so I'm playing with the band at the rehearsal, a big band because of the Astral Weeks, like 15 pieces, really having fun. I played Gloria at the Whiskey with them and the Doors the last night they were in town. I knew the song well. And the the musicians were all smiling, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I said, where's Van? I said, oh, he's he's in the dressing room. And, And the backup singers sang the leads. Then they said to me, Oh, there might be a Bo Diddley section in the middle here. And I said, oh, great, but I, I kind of need to know that. <laughs> well, that's up to Van. Okay, great. Where is he? Uh, In his dressing room. And you can tell that they were kind of nervous about confronting him. So I said, hey, I, I'll go talk to him. You know, we were hanging out at the whiskey. So I knock on the door, and and, and he he said, I'm on the phone. I said, are you doing Bo Diddley? And he said, whatever you want. I said, okay. So then I come back after the rehearsal in the evening to play. And the manager says, all right, Gloria is going to be the encore before the end of the first half. You walk out with Van. He will introduce you. And then you play Gloria. Perfect. We do that. And he doesn't introduce me. And then the band gets nervous and starts playing Gloria without me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm standing in front of 10,000 people wondering what to do. Now, where are you again? Are you center stage, stage left? Yeah, yeah, sort of center stage, left or right, whatever. But you're out there. They see you. I'm out there, and then I I see a tambourine under the backup singers, and I go pick that up and start playing it like it was part of the plan. And then I go up to the drummer, and we're trying to switch. But I know that there'll be four bars that drop out and Van will turn around and scowl. And then, so I just play the friggin' tambourine and the song ends. Van disappears. The, the managers are real apologetic. And then there's a live uh, CD released of the evening crediting me playing tambourine. 
Hey, Sylvan owes me. And I hope he's listening to this. Uh, I'm a writer now, and I have a script trying to get a Hollywood movie made. And I think he he should give me Brown Eyed Girl. <laughs> sure. Which is not a cheap song. I bet it's not. <laughs> Mind you, the old Walter Winchell quote, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. You know. Uh, what are you going to do? Then I heard Into the Mystic, and I forgave him. It's so brilliant. Jim was quite difficult as well. I know, so I you know. can read about all this gossip in the Cedars. Yes, 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 and yes, then yes. there's some mystical stuff, too. I want to come to that, because in your book, you have a chapter on the master vibraphone player, Neil hey, Richards. Yeah. And you detail the story he told you about George Harrison that really gave me chills and, and a true sense of peace, too. Talk oh, about good. That. Yeah, sweet. Emil is a legendary musician who played with Sinatra, Ravi Shankar, and George Harrison. And um, at the, when George was checking out, right after he passed, uh, Olivia, his wife, called Emil, and Emil and Celeste came over and did a little ritual. Because Emil was uh, in India when the Beatles were there with Maharishi and Paul Horn and the Beach Boys and all of that. And so, and Emil is playing with all the Indian musicians in the Concert for George tribute, which is a beautiful two-hour tribute. So, yeah, I'm just really touched to be uh, near these people. Yes, George had just passed. He mentioned that you almost saw a smile on his face. Well, that's what Emil said, you know, so there you go. And then I love what George said about thinking about John Lennon after he had passed. And George said, uh, you know, if you can't feel close to someone who's just crossed over, how are you going to feel close to Jesus? or Allah, or whoever you're into. And so, you know, I I have dreams and conversations with Morrison and Manzarek. I believe it. I really do. Yeah. The Doors' final album, L.A. Woman, turns 50 this year. Oh, good. And for what it's worth, it's my favorite Doors album. Yeah. And uh, that was recorded at the Doors' workshop. Today might be considered a home studio of sorts. Yeah, exactly. Except instead of a vocal booth, Jim was in the bathroom in the shower. But we had tile on the shower wall, so it was natural reverb. (laughs) I tell you, it was a real organic album. We were in our rehearsal space. We were producing with Bruce Botnick, our old engineer. You know, a song like L.A. Woman, it is my favorite album, too. As a drummer, it was was rather um, difficult. The groove, fast, you know, like mm-hmm. 60 mile an hour LA freeway groove. Right. And Jim, uh, Jim had this um, change the mood from glad to sadness. He was writing about Manson a little bit. It, what, what was so brilliant was that he was writing about LA as a woman. I see your hair is burning. The hills are filled with fire. That those are fires. And then motel money, murder, madness is Manson. Changed the mood from glad to sadness. So then I decided to make it slow. But then he had this Mr. Mojo Rising, and I knew Mojo was a term for sexual prowess or whatever. Mm. And I thought, all right, let's speed the whole thing up, like uh, towards an orgasm or whatever. But my goal was when we got to the top of it, back to the original tempo, I was trying to approximate the same tempo five minutes earlier at the start of the song. That was a challenge. I think I overshot it, Don, just a little. But there's so much good feeling 
Oh, just like a big jam session. I, I love that album. And for all the talk about the Doors not having a bass player, you had one hell of a bass player for those sessions. Oh, Jerry Sheff. How'd yeah. You, how'd you, yeah. How'd you come to get him in there? Uh, it was Bruce who, who he knew that Jerry had played with Elvis and thought we'd like that. And then I started playing with Jerry. And, and just like you said, bass players and drummers, if they're tight, oh, it's a great bottom foundation. And by that album, you guys had long since progressed. Well, you progressed with every album, but long since left behind the, the kind of psychedelic sounds of Strange Days and, and all the roots with the Morrison Hotel. I hate to play the speculation game, but if Jim had lived, where do you think musically the doors would have gone? I think because Ray and Jim were in film school, we would have been doing music for films. And I also think Riders on the Storm was... Uh, we played it in Dallas once live, and it was really cool, working really well. And then the next night in New Orleans, Jim was so drunk, Ray and Robbie agreed to throw in the towel on playing live, for a while anyway. So be it. I want to ask you just one last thing. Tribal Jazz, about 15 oh. years ago you did that project. Talk yeah. a little bit about that, because that's fantastic. Oh, really fun as a drummer. I had two African drummers playing Senegalese rhythms. So I, I could almost play with one hand. There was such a rhythmic groove going on. And it was really fun. Also, I had a percussionist. So um, we played the Skirball, uh, about a 1,500-seater here. And everybody was dancing. And it was really great. The thing is that it was released when downloading began. And it just took the wind out of tribal jazz sales. And the record company didn't really promote it. But I did it. I always wanted to make a jazz album. so It was beautiful. Oh, thank you. And you got a great book. John, thank you. You've been so generous with your time. Hey, Don. Don, I really appreciate your knowledge of music and drums. Makes for a great interview. Thank you.
1971 classic album, L.A. Woman. That's the Changeling featuring John Densmore, who I want to thank for taking the time out of his crazy schedule to be on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. With busy guys like him, the time allotted for interviews is limited, so I tried to cram in as much as I could, and he was more than generous with his time. And I also want to thank my friend, Doors Manager, Jeff Jampole, and the whole team over at Jampole Artist Management, as well as John Densmore's literary manager, Michael Gerantano at Ashe Books, for going out of their way to make this interview possible. And speaking of LA Woman, Doors fans are in for a treat. I've been enjoying their remastering of their catalog over the past few years and all the bonus tracks and rare outtakes and assorted goodies that's been included. But I've been waiting for LA Woman. And on December 3rd, that wait is over because the good people at Rhino Entertainment are releasing The Doors LA Woman 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. Now, this will include the original album newly remastered by The Doors longtime engineer, Bruce Botnick, two bonus discs of unreleased studio outtakes, and the stereo mix of the original album on 180-gram virgin vinyl. That's important, because nothing's worse than a slutty record. The music will also be available from digital and streaming services on December 3rd, as well as a new Dolby Atmos mix of the original album. Personally, I'm looking forward to finally hearing the original demo for Riders on the Storm, which was thought to be lost, but was recently found in an unmarked tape box in their vaults. And fans are going to remember that this was the version that their longtime producer, Paul Rothschild, famously called cocktail music sorry paul you were right a hundred times but it's the one cock up that everyone seems to remember if you have any questions comments cleaning tips anything you can reach us online at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on facebook instagram tiktok youtube at it's only rock and roll podcast typed out is all one word no spaces please wake up Be sure to check us out again, and thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. What are they doing in the Hyacinth House? What are they doing in the Hyacinth House to please the lions? Yeah, this day.
say it.